Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Psalm 95, by way of introduction, uh, it does not have uh, any superscript, and and that's common with the psalms that are around this one. Uh, There's nothing there to inform us of who the human author uh, is, other or other information we tend to find in the superscript. Um, The the most ancient translations, though, uh, they attribute it to David, and so does God's Word. And Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, um, a section of this psalm is quoted, and it actually says there, as David said, um, and so we have that indication. Uh, as far as genre goes, um, there's multiple genres in this 11-verse uh, song. Like Psalm 94, it's an enthronement psalm celebrating Christ as our king, um, but it also fits into the praise genre, especially in verses 1 through 3, as well as an instructional or didactic or teaching genre in verses 8 through 11. Let's uh, read it. It says, O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his, he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the day of provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work, forty years long was I grieved with this generation. I said, it's a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, this song you gave us here in Psalm 95, there's such great truths in here. Um, we're invited to worship, and then we're given reasons to worship because you are our creator, you're our sustainer, you're our shepherd. And then you give a full gracious warning of what not to do. Um, for us to be on guard anytime fear might rise, its ugly head. Uh, Lord, help us to remember the facts that you give us in this psalm so that we can leave fear and bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the praise theme part of this song, it's in the first uh, three verses. We're invited in verse one to come. Let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. That phrase, make a joyful noise, it's repeated again in verse two. A uh, Hebrew word for joyful noise is ruah, and it means a loud <laughs> noise, uh, loud noise. And here's a few characteristics in these verses of what God uh, commands and desires in regard to our worship of him. First of all, He wants there to be music. We're to sing, we're to make music, and we're to do so loudly, uh, so with joy and excitement. 
Uh, also, uh, it is to be corporate. He wants our praise um, to happen with others together. Look how many times there's pronouns like us and our in those first two verses. We also learned that our worship of God, it is to be theocentric. It's to be God-centered or Christocentric. It's to be Christ-centered. Our worship should be to and about uh, God. It says to sing to the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Um, We're given some content and themes for our singing, even in the first three verses. He's the rock of our salvation. Uh, We should express gratitude and thankfulness as we worship. Uh, for who he is and what he's done. And then in verse 3, it says this, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. So he alone. This should also be part of our worship. We should um, sing, pronounce him, worship him as uh, our King and our God alone. And then, beginning in verses 4 through 8, we're given some additional content about God that we can use to answer the invitation in the first three verses, the invitation to worship him. Um, we don't really have any fear in Psalm 95. There, there's nothing that uh, speaks of the fear or the circumstances that can cause fear. Just facts, really. Just facts about who God is and what God has done and what God has to do to help fuel our faith in him. And that is vitally necessary, not for just climbing out of fear into faith, but for avoiding fear and faithlessness altogether in the first place. So to help us avoid being like the people that are described at the end of this song. First of all, God is presented to us as our creator in verses four to six. That's fact number one here in Psalm 95. God is our creator. That's fact number one in the Bible, isn't it? When you go back to Genesis, if you get that right, you've got a solid foundation laid for everything else. If you get that wrong, you're gonna be wrong about just just about everything else uh, in life. The reason that the deep places of the earth, it says in verse 4, the reason that they are in his hand is because he created them. He is creator of all. He is sustainer of all. When you read that, deep places of the earth, what comes to my mind uh, in that phrase is those extremely uh, deep places in the ocean, like you might watch on a Discovery Channel uh, show or documentary where, where some submersible uh, descends down to the ocean floor in the Mariana Trench or something where light can't even reach and, and you see those frightening and freaky looking fish like on Finding Nemo, even scared little Nemo, right? Um, and, and then verse 4 continued with the strength of the hills is his also. Strength meaning the peaks, the very top, the, the heights. So what you have in verse 4 is a literary technique that we find often in the Psalms. Um, It's called a merism. Uh, Two completely opposite things are presented. The deep, deep, deep ocean depths and the highest mountain ranges. Two completely opposite things are mentioned to actually indicate totality. So so verse 4 isn't just saying that God is the creator and that he's in control of the deepest depths uh, in the ocean and the highest peaks of the mountains, but everything else in between, that flat land, uh, it's on its own. No. Uh, Verse 4 gives us this fact. Jesus Christ is creator of all, and he is sustainer of all. Everything. And we find the same thing. We find the same technique in verse 5. It says the sea is his. He made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Two things to indicate totality. Uh, Okay, I think most of us here would 
assent to the fact that God is our creator? What does that mean for us? How should we respond to that fact? Well, it means we're his, right? We're his. Uh, Spurgeon said, if God owns the sea because he made it, he owns you because he made you too. You are his creation. And by all rights of creatorship, you belong to him. What is so crazy is that so many people dispute that claim. Instead of doing what we were created for, human beings, instead of glorifying God and enjoying relationship with him forever, far too much of his creation does just the opposite. And, he, and what's even more unthinkable is how many who have been recreated, they've been born again, they've been saved, they live the same way as well. Now, the fact that Christ is our creator means that we should accept the invitation of verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our maker. As his creation, we should worship our creator in a manner that recognizes our position before him and his position. He's creator, we are creation. And we're taught how to do that in verse 6. Worship, bow down. The Hebrew word for worship, Tommy's talked about this before, uh, is shakaw, and it, it means, literally, it means to bow down. So in verse 6, um, it's telling us that the proper response to the fact that Christ is our creator and that we are his creation is that we need to bow down and bow down. <laughs> Do you think God's trying to emphasize something there to us? And just like the corporate singing, this bowing down in worship is something that we're invited to do together too. It says us and our there in verse six. We're to submit all of ourselves as individuals to our creator in complete obedience. And when we all do this individually, we will all be doing this together. All right, second fact in verse seven. He's not just our creator, he's our shepherd. This is a second fact given to us in faith. And it's, it's unique to Christianity the fact that God is our shepherd. You see, um, just about every other pagan and idolatrous uh, religion, um, they would recognize a creator. They worship a creator. But only, only faith in God's grace to us in Jesus Christ has what verse 7 describes. He is our God. And we are the people of his pasture. We're the sheep of his hand. So here the fact moves from creator and creation uh, from that dynamic to a loving, leading shepherd and we his sheep. So this is not a human-conceived God, small g God, who created everything and then just let it go. Um, it's not a small g God who created everything, but uh, the only time he intervenes is when he wants to be malicious because he's been angered by his creation. No, he's a good shepherd, right? Now how he's presented in Scripture, uh, the provision and, and presence and peace that's communicated in the 23rd Psalm, that's echoed here in Psalm 95, 7. Um, Jesus assuring us, I am the good shepherd in John 10, 14. That should come to mind. The, the one who lays down his life for his sheep. The one who speaks to them and, and whose sheep hear his voice the one um, who has sheep that know him and they follow him, the one who gives to them eternal life, they shall never perish, neither shall anyone 
pluck them out of his hand. He holds them securely. Aren't you just beyond thankful that, that this is who God is for us in Jesus Christ? I mean, he's not just creator and like some sovereign, omnipotent God, um, an angry, you know, um, angry leader. No, he's our shepherd. And that's why we should come into his presence giving thanks like verse 3 invited us to do. You know, when Jesus came, um, he fulfilled every sacrifice we find in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, under the law. He fulfilled every single one that would atone uh, for sins except one, the sacrifice of thanksgiving. He didn't fulfill that. It was an offering of thanksgiving to God. But um, because that's true, you and I, we're not just allowed, we're commanded to offer him thanks continuously. That's what we learned months ago when we went through Hebrews. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips that openly profess his name. And then beginning at the end of verse 7 through the rest of this psalm, there's a warning issued. We are getting a bad example, and we should use the preceding verses, 1 through 6, to help us entirely avoid a similar path. Here's our example. The end of verse 7 says, Today, if you will hear his voice. And we could switch it up because it's 722. And we could say tonight. Tonight, if you will hear his voice. Do you understand there's an urgency to listen to, an urgency to heed um, the advice in this example that follows? We must listen to God with a soft heart right now, right now. Um, that is uniform time and tense that the Holy Spirit works in us. It is. It's always today. It's always tonight. It's always right now. The Holy Spirit's working is always in the present tense. The Holy Spirit does not speak to us about tomorrow, except in the book of James, to warn us not to boast in it, because we don't know uh, what a day will bring forth. Uh, the Holy Spirit in us. It's always about now. I'm reminded uh, C.S. Lewis in, in his uh, book, The Screw Tape Letters, it, it portrays a, a, a demon to um, a demon named Wormwood, and um, that was his message. If you want to uh, battle Christians successfully, you need to distract them from the present. If you can get them to live in the past, <laughs> If you can get them to worry about the future, you will disable them from having any meaningful impact or any victory over us. And here is the Holy Spirit's right now message and leading in verse 8. Don't harden your heart. Don't do it. Before we get into the specific example, I want to pause. Because when the Holy Spirit commands us in God's word to not harden our heart, that implies it means that there's some aspect of our own will that's involved when it comes to the hardness or softness of our heart. You know, God's word says that when we are saved, the very moment that we are born again, trusting in God's grace to us in Jesus Christ for salvation, that instinct, God gives us a new heart. Um, he turns what was a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And then as our creator, as our shepherd, he graciously provides us with every single thing that we may never ever need to, to keep our hearts soft and tender before him uh, and toward his word, 
toward his will for our lives. But in the command here, and this is the one that's quoted later in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, there's unquestionably uh, this implication that you and I definitely have a role and responsibility in using all of these things that God has provided to us to ensure that our hearts are never hardened toward him. So let's consider this specific negative example that's given here uh, that we're told to avoid. Verse 8, harden not your heart as in the day of provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, they proved me, and they saw my work. God's word tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 11, uh, about accounts from the Old Testament like this. It says, now these things were for our examples, to the intent that we not neither be idolaters, as were some of them. And it says, now all of these happened unto them for examples, and they're written for our admonition, you and I, even here thousands of years later, upon whom the ends of the world has come. What, what is verses 8 and 9 referring to? It's Exodus 17, where God's people, Israel, they rebelled against Moses and against God. With hard hearts, they accused Moses of leading them out of Egypt just to die. They didn't have any water. Do we need water? Yeah, we need water. Very important. Uh, and they didn't have water, at least until God had Moses strike the rock at Horeb and water came out. Now, why is that evidence of a hard heart? Because they accused God of either not being powerful enough or good enough to take care of them. They forgot what we learned here. He's a creator. <laughs> he created water. He can provide it to you. Uh, he's a shepherd. He'll provide what a sheep need. At the first sign of any kind of possible deprivation or need in their life, faith went completely out the window. Listen, do you know how crazy that is? That's crazy. Do you know how evidential of a, a hard heart that is? It happened in Exodus chapter 17. Two chapters. <laughs> Just two chapters after God had supernaturally and miraculously parted the Red Sea so that they could walk across on dry ground. And they wonder if he can handle water for them. Just two chapters after they annihilate the superpower of that era, the entire Egyptian army drowning in the sea. So do you see how not focusing on the facts, who God is, what God's done, what God's promised, how it so it rapidly, rapidly leads to a hard heart. We need to be on guard because it didn't take long. <laughs> and man, it has painful consequences when it's left unaddressed. Verse 10, 40 years long, I was grieved with this generation. And I said, it's a people that do err in their heart. They have not known my ways. Now, we are supposed to, we were told earlier in this song, we're supposed to worship God continually, praising him as our creator and shepherd. What did they do? They grieved him continually. For 40 years. He said there are people who err in their heart. And what else? They've not known my ways, God says. They haven't known my ways. Christian, that is a surefire rap to experience a hard heart. Not knowing what God has said about who he is and what he's done and what he's promised. Or maybe knowing it like cerebrally but not believing it. Now, I have to tell you, it is the most frustrating and honestly frustrating thing for me as a pastor. Um, it is the Christian who has access to God's word 
who he is and what he's done and what he's promised, but doesn't know it because knowing it or believing it consistently is simply not a priority in their lives. Or, or those who know it but don't make believing it a priority. The Legionnaire Ministry was uh, founded by R.C. Sproul. He's gone on to be with the Lord. They conducted a recent poll last two years among evangelicals in the United States. And so that's a very broad term. <laughs> um, but when you see evangelical, even comes from the word gospel. So typically these are people who, if you ask them, they would say, I've trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. Yes, I believe he's, you know, that's what an evangelical is, a personal relationship uh, with God. At least it used to. <laughs> 31% of professing evangelicals say science proves. 33%. 38% say that Jesus was not actually God. 62% say that God accepts all religions. 62% say that the Holy Spirit is nothing more than a force. 66% say that human beings are good by nature. And 75% say that God created Jesus. 75% of evangelicals think that Jesus is not equal with God, that he was the creation of God. That's the state of the church. I'm going to put it in quotes. That's the state of the church in our day. And it's what God describes in Hosea 4.6. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. God says, because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you. Verse 10 says, it is a people that do err in their heart, their hard heart. They've not known my ways. You know, that is an assault on God's glory. Um, and that'd be bad enough. But of course, there's negative consequences for the hard-hearted too. Look at verse 11. Unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. Now, rest or the promised land or Canaan, when you come across those words and concepts in the Old Testament, it has two primary symbolic applications for Christians today, you and I here. Um, yes, definitely heaven and eternity with Christ. That's where uh, most of our songs and hymns, when they talk about Canaan land, that's the picture, and, and that's true. But, but way more often in Scripture, when you hear, read, consider the concepts of rest or the promised land or Canaan, it's alluding to the relationship that you and I have with Christ right now. We get to heaven. Let me give you an example. Um, when Israel went into Canaan, when they went in to possess the land that God had promised them, what did they have to do prior to inheriting it fully and experiencing the blessings and rest God promised there? What did they have to do? They had to go and take it over. They had to fight off, uh, kick out. <laughs> Who was there already? Does that sound like heaven to you? Are you going to have to do that in heaven? No, I promise you, you will not have to do that in heaven. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that that's not what God's word's talking about when it says promise, land, or Canaan, or rest. But, but more often than, than not, when Scripture gives us, you know, these passages that speak of that, including verse 11, it's symbolic of the Christian life from the moment we are saved until God calls us home or he returns for us. So we get to heaven, there's things that need to be kicked out of our lives. There's victories that need to be 
one. There, there's change that needs to occur. And it takes consistent faith in the one who orders all of that and who equips us for all of that. Ultimately, it takes effort, effort on our part. And it requires a soft, yielded heart of faith. These hearted faithless from Exodus 17 that verses 8 through 11 are referring to, they never experienced that rest. They didn't. They died in the wilderness wandering uh, around. They had wandering hearts. Um, they couldn't experience it because faith was required. They wouldn't experience it because they refused to focus on the facts and ascend to faith when fear came their way. They just let fear run wild in their life. And judging by that poll, the same thing's going on with a lot of professing Christians today. And that's why God says here, today, Tonight, if you will hear what I'm saying to you, Christian, God says, don't harden your heart. Don't do it. Don't forget the facts. Don't let fear remain unaddressed in your life. Remember, I'm your maker. I'm your shepherd. And praise me for it. You know, we've been invited to sing together praises to God and give him thanks in the opening verses of Psalm 95. And then we've been encouraged to meditate on the comforting and faith-fueling truths of who God is for us in Jesus Christ. He's our creator. He's our shepherd. And um, these are facts that are designed to fuel our faith for whenever fear might come our way. These are facts that will ensure a soft, yielded, pliable to the Holy Spirit heart. But only, only if we focus on them, they're facts that will keep us from erring in our heart. They're facts that will ensure that we do know God's way, that we don't wind up in a poll giving some goofy answer like they did. Facts that will propel praise in our lives instead of causing God 40 years of grief. And they're facts that will keep us, according to verse 11, facts that will keep us in a blessed state of rest. That's a life that's lived full of faith and who God is for us in Jesus. I have Tommy and praise team come up, and um, we've got an opportunity to do what we've been invited to do in verses 1 through 3, and I hope we can do it with hearts that are excited about who God is for us in Jesus. Let's make a loud noise.